<laughs> Alright guys, um, welcome to this episode. Um, when we started this podcast, me and Jack wanted to get people from within the industry who had experience in film set, give advice. Um, little antidotes and some funny stories about being on a film set. Um, so yeah, we're very lucky today to get uh, a guest on, Jack introducing. Um, so today we're very lucky to have um, award-winning writer and director Jacob Michkowski on the show. He talks to us about his upcoming film, um, his first feature, Lies and Cheats, that will be releasing um, in around October. And he also talks to us about um, his previous content, his shorts that he has done. And um, he also talks to us about some, yeah, he also gives us some advice about the industry. Yeah, uh, Lies and Cheats should be out around October. Um, so all keep an eye on that and massive thank him for coming on and giving us his time and advice to help us and all you out there listening. So welcome to Rail Talk episode eight. Um, it's with me, Jay, and uh, Jack. Um, today, we always said we wanted to get a few people who were involved in the industry. Um, uh, we're lucky to have um, award-winning director and writer um, who's just finished his first feature film. Would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, hey, I'm Jacob Mijakovsky. Um, like they said, uh, I've been. I just finished my first feature. I was in LA uh, for a few weeks doing this award ceremony thing, but I mean, I've been making shorts for a while and working on features for a while and doing all sorts of little things in between. And uh, yeah, first thing's coming out soon and then hopefully, you know, more to come. Um, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, I'm curious because um, obviously with what's going on at the moment, has this delayed anything with uh, Lies and Cheat? Uh, with Lies and Cheats. So Lies and Cheats is the movie that I just finished. And I was actually able to get some distribution deals for it um, over this time. So it, it actually hasn't really delayed anything for us. Um, it's actually given me time to think about actually things like you don't think about usually until the end process of things like the ad campaigns and how we're going to go out there on social and how we're, what, what kind of style we're going to put out there. Uh, when the film really does especially start going on platforms. Um, but it, but it, yeah, it let me have time to talk to other streaming platforms or more, they're called digital aggregators, and uh, getting them to pick up the film and then they'll put it out uh, globally. So we've, had, we've used this time to get our ducks in a row and then when it's over, who knows, that's really a hard term to say, right, when this is all over. Um, yeah. when, people, when people start... Uh, going back into the world again in some way shape or form liars should be should be out there with them that's great so um do you reckon you'll be giving it giving it like a uh, limited release in like cinemas and stuff so you know hopefully when this is all over people can uh, go back to their normal film watching experience no i mean right now we're not talking about cinemas um i mean this is a you know movie podcast so it kind of goes right into that which really cinemas right now are only for you know obviously you've got your big budget movies you've got like the franchises you've got the marvels and and you got the big stuff then you've got like a little bit of medium fare with still but still with stars in it 
Um, and then really what's left over is some indie films, but indie films that either have won like the really, really, really big stuff. Um, but even then, it's also usually something with some kind of name in it. I mean, it didn't used to be like that. But nowadays, it's like if you don't have a name of any sort in your film, it's going to be next to yeah. impossible to get it into even like the Prince Charles and you know, like even these indie cinemas. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, we just went right for streaming, and I mean that's really where it's at right now. And then I'd love for stuff to be in cinemas, but with Liars and Cheats, we did film it with that in mind that this was not made for cinemas, and we didn't have our hearts set on it. Whereas other projects I've been working on, some of them like I really want this to be in theaters. It's it's bigger. It, it feels it needs to be there. But Liars, we wanted it to just be this thing where you could put it on, have a laugh, watch it at home. And that's really what we tailored it for. Yeah, it's um, it's one of those things like recent years, um, like streaming is like it's got its fair bit of criticism, but it's also been great at putting like a, a shining light on a lot of smaller indie projects. Um, I mean, other things as well. I mean, it's been great for even larger, like Martin Scorsese's Irishman last year. That was struggling, that was struggling to get off the ground for years, and luckily, you know, Netflix picked it up. And I think streaming is doing a really good job at picking up smaller indie projects. Yeah, 100%. It's great. It's great for a lot of products to just get out there and find its audience. And especially having, in the past few weeks, talked to a lot of digital sales agents. What's going on now is that, yeah, you may not, you may not hit everybody with smaller films. But if you go to the right platforms and you know how to market to the right people, you know, you can you can find an audience that's out there for your smaller film. And, and you talk about money. I mean, you know, if you depend on how much money yeah. you spent on it, you can try to start trying to make your money back on it and, you know, not, not live in total poverty, yeah. uh, you know, but, <laughs> but it's great. Yeah. Like streaming just kind of opens up the smaller audience, but it's people who really, you know, want to see your film. Um. Obviously, Lies and Cheats. Uh, do you want to give us a small like plot summary? Um, it's obviously I've seen it's a satire of uh, Hollywood and uh, the circuit that come that goes with it. Um, do you want to fill us in with a little bit more of it, like a small plot summary? Yeah, so it's a, it's about this famous actor, this like famous action star actor who wakes up in his London apartment. Everything's great, and uh, he goes to leave his apartment. He opens the door, and there's this swarm of reporters yelling at him, you know, taking photos, screaming, and he closes the door and he has no idea what the hell it's about. And then proceeds to find out that uh, through everyone that there's all these photos that have leaked. Uh, and then it becomes like emails and text messages and then like rumors and, and stories come out. And like some of them are true, some of them aren't true. But it, it basically his whole professional life and then which leads to like his personal life all just goes in turmoil. And it's this revolving door of people coming through his apartment, his, his asshole agent, his asshole publicist, his acting coach, his friends, like they all just kind of help themselves to his apartment to kind of come to his aid. But, you know, it's just this comedy of errors of like all these people and all these personalities. And yeah, it's a big, it just makes fun of like the huge ridiculous personalities that you can find in the movie yeah. business. So, so um, what what was your main influence behind this film? What what decided, what made you decide that you wanted to um, that you wanted to write this film? So, very directly, what made me decide to write it is because my best buddy 
was in town. We went to school together. We went to film school together in Boston. And then we lived in LA for a while and I went to London. And so we don't see each other much. So he was in London two years ago, roughly. And um, we were like, he was about to leave and we realized we hadn't talked about making movies a lot on this trip, or we hadn't talked about ideas. You know, we always talked about ideas. And so it was like two in the morning, like right before he was about to leave. And we were like, oh, we haven't talked about this yet. And then very soon we were like, well, we really need to make a feature. Like we'd been doing shorts and content and all this stuff for years and trying to develop features, but just couldn't get it off the ground. It's really hard, you know, to get money for a feature. And so we said, okay, look, this year, which I guess was 2018, I think, the be- it was like the beginning. It was right after New Year's. And it was, let's write a feature that we can shoot by ourselves that we don't really need really any money for. So we don't have to go beg, borrow, and steal to get this to happen. Let's just write it in one location with like limited actors, people we know, people we love, people we trust. Let's just make it happen. And he went off and tried and it's been two years. He hasn't done it yet, but I still ask about it. Um, and I went off, had, <laughs> I couldn't sleep and woke up like a two days, two days later and kind of just spat this script out in like two days, basically. I just, the, you know, it wasn't like a crazy idea, but it was just like, this is what I want to do. And it just, yeah. just came out. And then right away I had the script. And again, I always would work really hard on scripts and I would always go over them and over and over them. But again, for this purpose, I was like, I'm not going to go crazy over this. I'm just going to put it out there. I like it. And I just immediately went to the actors who I've worked with on shorts. And that was my first step to say, hey, do you want to do this film with me? You know, you had, I had like coffee with each one of them. And I said, I want you to play this character. And they all said yes. And from that point forward, it was like, great. All I need is an apartment. I'll find it. And that was yeah. it. You shot the film in like five days, which that's right. It just sounds insane, and the whole continuous shot, um, the likes of like Inuyasha, like with my like small experience on a film set, that just in five days as well, that just sounds like hell to me. <laughs> like, <laughs> like I, I I find like I think that's incredible the way you've done that. Uh, thank you. Um, I mean, it was it wasn't hell. I'll tell you, it was great. Um, what was hell was like pre-production was yeah was hard because the only way to shoot a film in five days is to plan the hell out of it yeah so (laughs) it was very much like we had i mean that that was able to we were able to do that because all the actors were up for it and all the actors were up for rehearsing so we rehearsed for a few weeks like i don't know after the second draft of the script was finished we did table reads then we took a break then we came back and rehearsed for like two weeks straight, you know, off and on uh, every other day. We rehearsed like two weeks straight right before production. Then we, were, we found the most amazing location and the most amazing guy who, who owns this apartment. He's a lovely guy, is a lovely guy. And he said, he's like, well, I, you know, if you want to be in the apartment while you rehearse, like we can work that out. Like he gave me like the best rate, like, you know, just helped us out so much. Okay where it made sense not it didn't make sense not to do it so we were rehearsing with with camera and the actors so we were blocking it out we were figuring out the shots so by the time we actually got on set with the actual equipment and you know the rest of the crew we like i would say okay let's let's show it to everybody and the actors would just run it 
with blocking with this all around the location yeah. and so it was a matter of you know talking to the camera a little bit and then it was but it was already set it was already planned and we were able to obviously we had to improvise a bunch on set but for the most part we kind of knew what we were going to do and then if something needed to change it would change but we we had a very tight schedule right it was like th it was like three yeah. hours <laughs> per section and we really like yeah. couldn't really go over that time we had to like nail it in this time and go on to the next shot so um you mentioned that you've worked with a lot of the um, a lot of the actors that you've already worked with. Do you think this was important to the chemistry of the characters in the film, the way that people acted together, if they've already acted together? Do you think this helped? Yeah, I think it helped, and I also think it helped to get the film done in five days. You know, there was like a shorthand with all of us. There was a comfort level with everybody. And, I mean, funny enough, there was there's seven characters in the film, and six of them I had worked with, like six of the actors I had worked with before on various shorts. And the seventh character, I couldn't find somebody for because I didn't, I didn't have someone like who I like knew and worked with and who was still in London to play that part. So that was the only one I auditioned for. Her name is, is in the movie. And um, she's like the only outsider. So at one, I was like, oh, I have to audition. Like, I love auditioning, but I was like, oh, great for this one. I can just not worry about auditioning and I've got the actors and I can save that time for later. But ended up auditioning for Peaches and it kind of worked out, you know, because like she's the only outsider in the movie. Everyone else, all the characters have a history. They know each other. And this is the one girl who not even the main character knows, like he meets her the night before. So it kind of worked that, that Halima, who played Peaches, was sort of, everyone was lovely to each other. But it was still like this, well, we don't know her and I don't know them. So it was a getting to know them, which was happening on, you know, on screen as well. Um, obviously, um, I want to talk about, because obviously this, you didn't, crowd, you, I don't, I, did you use any crowdfunding for Lies and Cheats? We did for Post. We, we had shot yeah. the film and we, were, we tried to get a little bit more just to make post-production, you know, easier and faster and uh, stuff like that. Um, have you got any advice for crowdfunding um, for any like up and coming filmmakers? Yeah, I mean, I did have a, a pretty successful crowdfund before the last short I did, and as to my knowledge, I mean, the best thing you can do to have a chance is just before you start the crowdfunding project, have as many people involved as you can. So. You know, don't just go out as a director or producer or writer and say, I've got this idea. I want to do this. Who wants to join me? Like, it's important to, like, go and pretty much have all the meetings you need to have for the movie to say, you know, every, literally everyone you could possibly get on board before you, know, you have the money, do that. So DP, actors, any, you know, if you need a producer, if you need production designer, like anybody, an editor, because... I mean, hopefully somebody has a good reputation and other people know them. But at, at the very least, if you send out like 200 emails, great. But if you have 20 people on the team and they all send out like, you know, social stuff and some of them might do more work than others, you you literally like your reach goes up by 10 or 20 percent or 50 percent or 200 percent. Just so it gets out there so much more if you've got more people involved. That's really the best thing you can do. Have the biggest team you can have 
connect everybody on the platforms, like, you know, make sure they're all as many as them can be are on the actual crowdfunding platform and the, you know, their names are at the bottom. And, and then other than that, it, I found it just kind of takes usually three times of contacting people until they might give. So, you know, just, just don't take it personally, but it's like, first time is like the first time they're hearing about it. The second time it's like, uh, I should do this. I'll get around to it. And then the third time, you know, maybe a week before it's over, you say that and they're like, Oh yeah. Yeah. And then you see a few more kind of come in and, um, mm-hmm. and sometimes you just get lucky. You know, sometimes you also, if you have look, if you have friends who are on the production or friends who can come on the production for it, who like, you know, have like really good friends who, who people have been known to give money or people who are willing to give money or people who are in the business who have a vested interest, you know, just ask them because no one's, no one's doing really yeah. doing a favor. Like people do favors, but <laughs> they're not going to go above their means, you know, as a favor, like they'll yeah. give what they can give. And if it happens to be a lot of money, it's not hurting them. They're just able to do it. So it's like, take what you can get and deliver and, you know, be good with the perks obviously afterwards and make sure everyone gets yeah. what they promised and everyone will be happy. So, um, how, how, just how proud of you, uh, just how proud of yourself are, I'm sorry, I cannot speak English, just how proud are you of Liars and Cheats? Do you think this is your best work yet? Oh, I mean, I'm very proud of, of Liars. Um, it's completely, it's kind of very different from all the shorts I did. So it's like hard to say like this is my best work or my, my worst work, but it's just like this total departure from everything I, I had put on screen before. And it's great. I'm very proud of it. It's great fun. Like, it's a comedy. So it's like, I think it's really funny. And so far, the screenings, people have been finding it really funny. And they love the one shot. And they love the characters. So I'm, you know, I'm very proud of it. I'm proud of the everyone who worked on it and what we put together. And, and the fact that we did this thing in five days. And it's, it works so well. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, to make a feature, I'm very happy. I'm very proud. But as I said, it's a comedy. So it's like, I hope everyone listening i hope everyone out there you know likes it and thinks it's funny but you know there's no real gauge for that like people are going to find it funny some people will some people won't um so i guess it's like i'll be proud of it every time i hear somebody say like oh yeah it was really funny you know because that's the big test of a comedy there's really no other way to look at it yeah um have you got any sort obviously with streaming platforms and what's going on now do you have any rough idea of when this will be available to to an audience? I think it's probably going to start to become available around September, October. That's, yeah, yeah that's, that's uh, I mean, follow, you know, we've got an Instagram, Liars and Cheats. That's pretty much right now. We've got Facebook and stuff too, but Instagram is where we're doing yeah. the most, we're putting stuff out there, we're having fun with the account. And then like when it starts to be available in different countries on different platforms, that's going to be the place that we're going to let everyone know uh, where it's at. And we'll try and do some screenings as well. We'll try and kind of do a one-off at some indie theaters in different cities. And uh, yeah. that information will come out there. Um, I want to talk about uh, the other exciting thing that happened this year um, with you, um, the Final Draft Awards. Yes, that was cool. Um how for like you obviously won how how was that whole experience i mean tarantino being there and was it what hill was there as well i believe 
Uh, there was a lot of people there. Um, let's see, who was there? So yeah, Tarantino was there. He was the last speaker. He was amazing. Um, then you had... Oh, man. It's been so long now. Who was there? It was like a time ago, doesn't it? Like like before the whole pandemic. It was. It was the last... It was like a different year. <laughs> it was the last like, big thing I did. And then I came home. And then all of a sudden, like the Western world was like, oh, this something, this thing that you may have not been paying attention to is... You better start. And so all of a sudden it was like, oh, the world's going to shut down. Um, it was very weird. Yeah. Um, God, I should probably look up, but Bong, Bong Hoon Jo oh, yeah. was there. Oh, he, yeah, that's he cool. He introduced uh, the woman who wrote The Farewell. Yeah. And I mean, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look terrible that I can't remember all these names on this podcast, but I just, <laughs> yeah, I just haven't. Uh, thought about it in so long because yeah like you said it just was this other time before corona but there were some amazing people there and basically going to the final draft which was really cool because uh, there were all these amazing speakers there there was a lot of optimism about like being a writer specifically and yeah. every and and meeting the other writers who were either like like we were all finalists and there were other people there who were there from years before and we hung out and like it was great it was great to be a part of this community now, but honestly, like the best part about that whole thing was, like you said, was Tarantino because there was like this air among everything of like Tarantino's here. Like we're gonna we're yeah. gonna get to like hear him speak and like be in the room and like experience him, and everyone was so excited. And they've had guests before, but like not necessarily like Tarantino. Yeah, and you know <laughs> so by the end of it like when he came on last everyone was just like waiting and waiting and he delivered like he came on the stage and it was this like 12-15 minute speech and it was like funny and inspiring and like yeah. going to his roots about like being a writer and talking about the video store and it was it was really great and really inspiring and he kind of like gave us all the finalists like a shout out and it was it was really like the one of those moments that you just kind of means something more than the the meeting this person or having lunch here or like be you know going to LA and it, those are all like yeah. details but like the real thing that you take away from it is hearing like one of your heroes one of the people who just knows yeah. how to make cinema uh, talk about what he knows best and that was really that was really inspiring stuff and I think the speech might be somewhere on the final draft website or they might there or the, there's at least quotes i think about articles about it and stuff so it's out there to see i think in some shape way shape or form but it was great it was really just inspiring stuff and then of course everything stopped as soon as we came all all you know came home it was like oh so the business is not here for a while so um you you won the award for the period historical war That's right. category. Um, ex- explain to us a little bit about the um, the screenplay that you wrote, Freefall. So Freefall is about is a true story about a man named Joe Kittinger, who jumped from space in and uh, nineteen sixty. He you might have heard of him, or you might have heard about something like this happening, or you might have yeah. heard about the Red Bull jump that Felix Baumgartner did in 2012, um, they're all connected because Joe 
was actually on with the project of, of the Red Bull Jump, and he was like Mission Control. And if you watched it, he was this bigger guy with this Texas kind of accent, kind of guiding Felix throughout the whole journey, um, talking to him back and forth. But Joe, Joe just in his in his heyday, him and this guy John Stapp were these amazing. He was a crazy mad scientist, like brilliant, brilliant guy. And Joe was the most brilliant test pilot. And this is in the days of like some of the very first jet planes. So it was like very experimental and going faster than people had ever gone before and going higher than anybody had ever gone. And so it was just this amazing time. And then through a bunch of events and, and basically the, the parachutes at the time in the Air Force, they weren't working uh, when people ejected high because they, they'd never gone that high before. So all of a sudden, all these pilots were being incredibly injured or they were dying and this was just going to get worse and worse and it was going to go to commercial you know flights and commercial parachute and all these people and joe decided they had to do something about it and basically got like no help from anybody and kind of had to it was almost like producing a film like you know like an indie film he just had to like get it done somehow with no money corral everybody together and ended up going up in a hot air balloon more or less uh, going to a hundred thousand feet where you're, you're, you're in space, you're basically in space, but you're not floating and you could, yeah. you're up there seeing the curve of the earth. And then he gets out and he jumps out back to earth like a madman. Hmm. And, you know, the, the spoiler <laughs> is, you know, he still he lived to tell, lived to tell the tale, you know, yeah. he was helping Felix later on and he's an amazing guy and it's an amazing story. And, you know, I was, I just, I got glued to it immediately as soon as I heard about it. Yeah. Um, how did this thing, how did you get involved with the awards and how did you end up getting like a nomination and eventually winning? I just submitted the award. Yeah. They have a rolling yeah. window every year and. Oh. <laughs> Right. Sorry about that. <laughs> uh, yeah, no worries. I'll start that again. Carry um, on, carry on. So I just submitted to the final draft awards, just like anybody else. Uh, I every I would always redo the drafts of it, like every six months or something of this film. I've yeah. I've been working on it for years, and when I think I have something I'm happy with, uh, depending on like what deadlines are out, I'll go. Oh, okay, this this you know script competition is available. This one's available. So. I knew final draft was big and I liked the draft I had and I just submitted it and forgot about it, you know? And, uh, I just, I just, they told me, Oh, you got into like the top this and the top that. And then you got this, you got that. So it was just a great role of like, Oh, you know, you're still in, you're still in, you're still in it. But I just like anybody, I just submitted and I, I got lucky and uh, they liked the script and, and I got to, you know, go to the ceremony and it was really cool. Um, so, um, oh no, sorry, Karen. <laughs> so, so c can you explain like the first five minutes after finding out you won the award? Like, what was that like for you? Oh, it was sort of like I couldn't, I wouldn't believe it. Like, I've never, you know, it's one of those things where like I just never win anything. You know, I, I submit to so many things, to festivals, to the competitions, whatever. I never win anything. So, like, you know. I got, I was in like the top 20 or whatever. And I was like, Oh, that's cool. Great. I'm going to put it out of my head like this. And then the top 10 and then this and the quarters and the semis and the finals. And I, 
I sort of didn't think every time that it was going to happen. So when it happened, I was like, when's like the next email going to come? That's like, oh, sorry. Like we actually put the wrong name in, you know, sorry, you didn't, you didn't win. You know, you, <laughs> it's supposed to go to Jason, you're Jacob. We got mixed up, you know? Uh, yeah. So it was, it was just like, nah, this can't be right. Can it? It was, um, it's a funny, funny way. But in this business, I've just grown so accustomed to just kind of expecting like rejection and expecting like, you know, it's not going to get it. And I don't mean that in a, in a negative way, by the way, guys, it's not like, yeah. you know, this, this industry you know, <laughs> sucks and never expect anything, but, but it's just more like going through the years, you just learn to like, okay, you know, it's a big world. There's, you know, something like Sundance and other giant festivals. You're literally, there's like 4,000 submissions. And what, like 15 spots, depending on what section. So yeah. all these kind of numbers and final draft had thousands and other competitions have thousands. So you just got to be like, wow, I know I deserve you know, to win. Everyone thinks they deserve to win. But like, God, what are the odds? So you just kind of submit and just go, okay, I hope, but probably not. <laughs> so when you actually finally do, it's, uh, it's like, okay, nudge me again in a few weeks and let me know if I believe you. That comment, I hope, but probably not. That should be like at the start of every single like film course. Yeah, there you go, right there. Um, um, but I, I want to talk to you about Avenue to Nowhere because I love French New Wave, um, and like Louis Malle, like Jean Luc Godard, and I really, really like that short film. Thank you. The style and like that whole scene in the jazz club is great. Um, I know you had a few problems with the uh, passports when shooting it. <laughs> oh God, I, don't, I, I can't even imagine where you read that, but I'm sure we put it out there somewhere. Yeah, had some stories. Um, and uh, what else? Because I imagine like shooting in Paris and the whole logistics of going from like London to Paris—that must have been quite difficult. And shooting in the streets. How did you plan all of that as well? It was, that was even more stressful than Liars. And like, we actually shot more days on Avenue. I think we shot seven or eight days for that short and five, you know, five days for Liars, which was a feature. So go figure. But yeah, we shot, we shot in London first. Well, I think five days in London in a row. And then the, the follow a, a skeleton over to Paris. Yeah, it was um, basically I, I planned the London stuff and then at the same time I was constantly like every few weeks going back and forth to Paris. Sometimes I'd bring the DP, Chris Moon, um, when he could come. Um, but it, then I found a producer in Paris and she was our, our point person there. So she, you know, she, we'd look at locations, she'd, she'd know where to show us when we got into town, then we'd start picking them, then she would talk to the people and, you know, get the perm well i don't know if we even had any permits but it was just like talk to the people you know yeah. this is how much yeah. you know, <laughs> sorting out a location so so she was always there helping us doing what needed to be done while i was in london and then yeah and then we just made sure we took like literally one big van a nine-seater over to paris we drove over and uh then we had a few actors like take the Eurostar over i think two actors took the trains over to meet us there like because they only had one scene to do or something and yeah it was really really 
crazy. I mean, the London the London shoot <laughs> was was fun and and crazy, but the Paris shoot was like there was no help there because our our person in Paris she was pregnant the whole time, and then yeah. when we got <laughs> to Paris, she I think she did meet us like the first day, but she was just like at some point called us she was like i can't make it like i'm you know i'm i'm feeling bad i'm i'm in a bad place here like i'm yeah. you know the pregnancy is, is kicking in and i can't really leave my house so we had to then like luckily we had a french production designer who was from paris also so she was a she kind of turned into like production designer slash producer because she would have to talk to our locations people like the people that who owned the bar the people who own this and so that was really helpful but like it was it was just uh also the whole film as you know avenue to nowhere takes place over one night yeah so that means everything we shot happened at night which means you know <laughs> yeah, no sleep so yeah. paris especially was just like we'd start shooting at about Eight, seven o'clock, eight o'clock at night in Paris, and we'd shoot till like six in the morning, and then we'd try and get a, a wink of sleep during the day. And it was like that. I think three days straight, and I didn't have another producer there. And I remember we were like, I think it was like the second day, and one of the actors arrived for like one of his stuff in at the hotel, and he just happened to like get out of the elevator at the same point that I was like going in, and he looked at me and he was like, "Hey." Jacob, how you, how you doing? Like, I got here. And I was like, hey, man. And I gave him a big hug. And then we kind of stepped back. And, and he just looked at me for a second and went, oh, man, you look like shit. <laughs> like, you look crazy, man. Are you okay? I was like, I think so. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, I guess shooting for Paris throughout the night as well. I mean, being like such a large city, city like Paris, I bet you met some interesting people while shooting on the streets. Dude, mm. I mean, like, what comes to mind immediately, and I haven't thought about this in so long, is, like, we we had, yeah, one one location that we went to at about probably two in the morning or one in the morning. And I think when we were there at, like, maybe 10 o'clock at night with the scout, like, months earlier, she was like, oh, yeah, like, this is this looks cool, right? I was like, yeah. She's like, yeah. I mean, it is like where like all the the hookers are and like some like drug dealers are and stuff. She's like, it's not like the worst part of town, but it's not the best. But I was there and it was like maybe eleven or ten. I was like, it seems all right. She was like, yeah, it should be fine. So yeah, well, we got there at like two for the actual shoot or something with like a van full of everyone who was needed, which was like a whole van of like you know nine or ten people. Yeah. Then we had the equipment. Again, not tons of equipment, but we, by the way, we shot on film, you know, for everyone listening. So we're talking about a film camera and, you know, negative stuff. So we <laughs> got out and I'm trying to remember exactly how it went down. I think we shot, yeah, we shot a few things in this kind of alleyway. And most people stayed by the van and a few of us shot the stuff in the alley. And then it was like, okay, now let's go to this part of the location, just walk in and get these shots. So our DP holding a 16 mil camera with all the trimmings yeah. <laughs> is like on the other side of this like other small street, like a side street. And then as like we're trying to prep stuff near the van, like 
these two guys kind of walk up to us and like they were luckily i'd say for us like pretty drunk but definitely just you know, like just up to no good just like very yeah. slowly starting in to kind of like most likely rob us and they were you know getting closer and they had like a bottle in their hands and they were just you know just doing things that you know like this isn't this isn't going to be good and i was like oh shit okay um so now i'm calling chris like with my hand i'm like get back get back here chris like he has this camera but like he sees it but he doesn't want to walk there as they're there because he's like if they see this giant camera and it gets taken like that's like 500 grand you know like so he was thinking about the camera no nothing else Um, (laughs) but you know good so eventually like chris finds a way like when they kind of moved away from what he thought was like a position you know of, of danger and he kind of like comes by gets to the boot of the van like puts it in and these guys are like what's this thing like and then they kind of like kind of groggily like walk to the back and then he like shuts it before anything can happen and then we're trying to like all get in the van now and i think it's like me and somebody else who are the last people on the street and everyone else is inside and this guy just wouldn't get in the van he would like kept on trying to talk to these guys like and he were like they were like asking money first and then he was like oh well i've got and he's like flashing money now and i'm like god just get in the car like what? no and then i i think i had to just like get in and then like a, some some of the people in the car like just kind of pull our guy in to the car and then it was you know me out there and like i just jumped in the passenger seat i closed the door really quickly and i was just like drive you know and like they were like banging on it was like very touch and go but luckily we really everyone got out of there you know without a, a scratch but yeah it shot like a, like another noir film while like the whole escape i know i mean it's like inception short film i know it was it was crazy and then we yeah. and then of course like a film crew we drove around to our like uh second option and shot the scene we were going to shoot you know in a much safer place i was like i didn't like it as much but it doesn't matter (laughs) one one thing i um did notice about avenue to nowhere in one of the in uh one of the scenes there's a um james dean rebel without a cause um poster on the wall is this um is this film significant to you did this provide any you know influences um in this production or anywhere else no (laughs) No, that was just, that was just uh, one of the, the posters that the production designer, I told her, you know, I wanted old posters and she knew what time it was and she, she just put it on the wall. I loved it. Um, and I have it. I have it hanging in my house uh, still, but yeah, no significance. But I, but there was a French, I think there was a few French <laughs> posters there, like another one, like maybe a Bardot one that had yeah. some significance, definitely. Um, I want to get into that because, uh, like, I, I recently love French New Wave. Um, who would like your biggest like influences of like directors from that like French New Wave like era? For you? Yeah, I mean, the thing that really got me into, I pretty much wanted to make this movie without knowing I wanted to make this movie. Um, Avenue yeah. to Nowhere, that is. Um, when I saw a Louis Mal film 
called it's either called elevated to the gallows or it's called uh, lift to yeah. the scaffold in, yeah. in here yeah. um and the french title is Le i'm gonna butcher it so i'm not even gonna say it la censure pour le show i think which yeah. obviously sounds terrible with my canadian accent um but yeah so louis <laughs> Mouse the scaffold was this film that like a photographer who was like way my senior um when i was living in la like he kind of talked to me about it or he told me because oh, the score is a miles davis score for this louis mal film which is originally why i wanted to watch it and then i saw this film and it just like the visual language of it just blew me away i mean i don't think the film is this masterpiece i mean it's very good and it's compelling and everything yeah. but you know it didn't like stand up it had a lot of plot holes and stuff but it was like so atmospheric and the music was amazing and in and the the camera was amazing and the actors were just like exuding, you know, uh, yeah. so much was, uh, emotion was just coming out of like their eyes and it was all very French and, you know, it was lots of looks and it was all shot at night. Uh, most of it was shot at night. And so like everything about that film, I was like, I need to make a movie like this. And then like seven, six years later or something, I ended up, you know, I was like, Ooh, and I started writing the script realizing that yeah. this is pretty much what I was writing, but I loved that. I loved, uh, I'm trying to think what else, uh, like Anna, Anna, Karina, not Anna Karina. What am I saying? No, she's in the movie. Um, Alphaville is another movie that I loved. Again, I didn't, I didn't get like right into the story, but again, like at this time in my life, I was all about like, I love this black and white photography. I love the way it feels. Yeah. I love the way it looks. And I just knew like I was going to kind of make a story a little more that just appealed to me. But my biggest thing about French New Wave was just like the style, you know, it was just so much sizzle yeah. and style and just like cool. And I just wanted to make like a cool movie. Have you seen The Fire Within by Louis Mal? No, I haven't. Oh, that's great. Like, that's probably, I probably say that's my favorite of his out of all of them. Um, um, I, I, yeah, it's it's about that. It's, it's set in Paris and it's about like an alcoholic, and it's it's really great if you haven't seen it. I'll um, check it out. I um I want to ask you because Paris is such like a a great city, and like shooting in it is like a dream. Um, what other cities across the world would you like love to make as a setting for a film? Cuba, like yeah. Havana would be really cool. New Orleans would be great. Uh, I mean, look, it's, it's cliche, but I mean, definitely still New York. I would still love to go and shoot in New York. Mm -hmm. There's just something so magical about that city. Yeah, I mean, those, those would definitely come to mind. Miami has some cool uh, bits about it. I mean, there's places I haven't been that I would assume I'd love to shoot in, you know? Yeah. Uh, but I mean, you know, and then even just going up to Scotland, even even the footage I've yeah. seen of the the hills in Scotland, like with the with the mist everywhere and uh, the rolling green, like th that looks unbelievable as well. Um, one thing I noticed about Avenue to Nowhere. Correct me if I'm wrong here, but um, the film begins and it ends with near enough the uh, the same shot. Was this done intentionally? Or did it just sort of happen? Wow, I haven't seen it in a very long time. 
Um, does it? That's... <laughs> I, I'm, pre- I'm pretty sure um, it begins and ends with a shot of the Eiffel Tower. Okay, okay, yes. The Eiffel Tower, yes. Um, was it intentional? I mean, intentional in the sense that, like, I don't think I wrote it like that in the script, you know? Um, but it's, it's, you know, obviously when the editing came out, I mean, we knew what we were doing. But yeah, it wasn't like we had pre-thought that out and said, like, oh, this is going to how it's end, this is how it start. I mean, the thing with that film, and I'll, I can say it in, like, a few, like, a minute, I'll try not to blab, babble on about it, but it, when we got in the edit for it, we edited it to the script, and it just didn't work. It just didn't work. There was it just like was a little convoluted, and uh, there was a there was a bigger like crime story element to it, and it it just didn't seem to like pull together as I wanted it to. So then, I mean, my editor was like, "Well, maybe we could do reshoots." I'm like, "On what budget?" You know, I'd love to, but so we just had to find a way to make it work. So we we like talked about it for months and months. So that was like a rigorous thing, just trying to get the edit to work and find what story could we really like zero in on and what did, what could we cut out to kind of not like make a brand new film out of it, but it was certainly like a more focused, like let's forget about this side story. Let's just focus on this bit. And if we're going to do that, then we have to like make this work. I think like a few of the things we did was, like she goes to make a phone call at one point in, in this cafe, like early on. And I think a lot of the dialogue you hear is rewritten, you know, like, and we might even have shots like that. You don't see her mouth moving or something, but we definitely like rewrote that conversation to make the film make more sense for what we were going to see. And yeah, all that we like, we rewrote with dialogue. We rewrote with voiceover. We rewrote, Oh, there was a whole there's a whole bit in the film that's like a montage bit um of of like them like getting ready to leave and again we like wrote this whole voiceover that goes over that that is a little more explanatory of like helping the audience know like oh like this is what they're doing this is where they're going and none of that was in the script as well so it was very much like written again with the edit and so yeah i mean i don't know it, it starts and ends with the eiffel tower that's more of a just uh, i guess we thought it felt right and it it felt cool to do that but yeah in terms of what we wanted to do with that film it was like complete improvisation as soon as we got into the edit um i mean it's it's a classic old debate but you shot this in 60 minute film um what was it like i mean do you prefer shooting with film or digital it's like the the new old the new digital age debate what did you prefer oh there's no question film yeah. Film is is the only way to go. I mean, it's so much better. It's it's it lives, it breathes. It has a texture to it. Everything looks better on film. I don't care, you know, okay, it's harder whatever. Like it's film. It looks so fucking beautiful. Um film every time if I could. And and the next <laughs> the next film I make I just like I just I just need it. I just need film. I just want to be like, look, give me film. Like, what do you need me to cut from this, you know, budget <laughs> to make room for the film? But we need to shoot on film. It just so much. It just looks so much better. Sixteen millimeter, especially like I think it's that perfect like balance of 
it creates that like the whole grainy feel it creates. It's it's very it's a little bit more. It throws back to like the nostalgic Super 8, like 8mm. And it's like sort of in between like the 35mm. And I just love the grainy, like nostalgic like image it gives. Yeah. It's great. And and the fact that we were making a, a throwback to French New Wave and knowing that even yeah. they were, sh- were shooting on 16mm. So it wasn't like we were like, oh, we couldn't afford 35mm, which we couldn't. <laughs> but. <Yeah. laughs> Oh, you know, a 35 mil camera. And all that. <laughs> oh, you know, we're just shooting on 16. But like they, they were all, most of them were all shot on 16 mil, uh, same cameras that we used. So like, it was very much like, we're not trying to reinvent a, a French New Wave film. We're not trying to like use all the tools that, that we can use to make this. We're, we're like, what did they shoot on? How did they shoot it? That's how we want to shoot it. And you know what? What do they shoot it like? You, I'd rewatch all these French New Wave films, and I'd definitely rewatch uh, Lift to the Scaffold a bunch. And I've saved, saved for like some things. Um, you know, like they have all these nighttime shots of of walking around, and like it's just it's just available light. They just walk down streets and shot. So when we went to scout scout locations in Paris, like we would scout them, but then also we'd always have to have our light meter on hand to be like, can we even shoot on this street? Is there any available light? How's the street lamps? Are there light? Hmm. Is there light coming from the storefronts? Like at you know ten at night, like are the storefront lights open? All these kind of things that we were looking at. So letting us shoot at night was um, was really cool, and that was that was so much fun just to like when like when we got the footage back and we got that scan back and, and I was watching the footage, I was just like, oh my god, this actually looks like I wanted to look. It was so cool. So um you also have another um short film waiting for a stranger. Um this film also has, you know, a very sort of um period piece feel to it. Obviously it's not set in um modern times. Um this is a recurring theme in your work. Do you um do you prefer to write films that are not set in modern times? Is this just a coincidence that it's what you want to write about when you you know when you think about writing, or um or where, where does that inspiration not a come from? I love old films. I love I love writing films that take place yeah in fifties, sixties, seventies. I love it. I just, um, I don't know what it is. Like, I have a problem, I would even say, with, like, writing modern day films or, or <laughs> just getting in my head around, like, well, I like this story, but oof, it takes place in modern times. Like, I just, I just love being able to, like, transport back to a period, to, to, it's like the way it's going to look, the way it's going to feel. Um, I, and also, like, I, have a really hard time. I hate like making a film or writing a film or thinking about making a film that has cell phones in it. I, I, I don't know. Don't ask, don't ask me why. But, like as soon as I know that it's like an era with cell phones, <laughs> there's a lot of things that like just take away the tension for me. I'm like, it's a cell phone. Everyone's got cell phones. Like where's the tension? Like you can call this person. You can text this person. You know where this person is. Like, like everyone's available at all times. Like if they're in trouble, they can just call, you know? And it's like, okay. Like there's like half the tension of like, nobody knows where this person is or nobody knows where to go or someone has to find out this. And, 
and yeah. like just the idea of like this available information that can just a lot of times just like take away from a film in general of like being in this time now of course i wrote liars and cheats which was a hundred percent you know and i wanted yeah. to no one forced me to do it but i was like this makes sense to be shot on digital this makes sense to be in modern times because like it's all about modern times so, like liars and cheats is not only a satire on hollywood it's a satire on like social media on cell phones on text messages on on the way the world just like reacts in an instant to something especially if someone's famous you know within like a few minutes like you've got millions of tweets on the subject and 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 like now you know when news outlets now like will use you know twitter as a source and instagram as a source and it's like that was so funny to me because they're not sources they're just a bunch of people saying things <laughs> So I was like making fun of that as well. So that made sense for modern times. But yeah, other than Liars, I can't remember the last time I like made a film or wrote a film that took place in modern day. I just love, I don't know what it is. There's no reason for it. I just love the texture of being able to make a film in, in the 40s or the 50s or the 60s or the 70s. I think of 70s movies, I think of like French Connection, you know? Uh, yeah. You just get this like tangible feeling of going back in those films and recreating those time periods and those moments and the music it just feels more fun and it feels more like you can do so much more with atmosphere when you go back in time than than now it's just, that's just like that's just me that's just how my brain works for some reason i just love everything i love is older anyways you know like all the music i love is older all the movies i love are older so it just makes sense Um, coming back to the uh, the music that you uh, do love, um, a lot of a lot of your films have a um, have a jazz influence. Again, I'm assuming this is um, linked to the well, time periods that you write in. I love a lot of music, but I definitely love jazz. So I just I also love like I think because I love a lot of music that's older and I love jazz. It also brings me to these time periods almost for me to be like, hey, I can write a movie and then I can like write some great jazz for it like not me personally write it but you know so there's like even a fun aspect of like oh if I set a movie here then I get to have this soundtrack with it so that's part of it too I just I love music and I and I I put so much heart and soul not only into like the movie but in 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 post like being able to like think of the music and if I'm able to actually like for Avenue to Nowhere i yeah. I found a jazz band who was totally with me on board with it. And, and the whole point was like, like Louis Mal's uh, Elevated to the Gallows. I was like, I want to get, I want to do an original jazz score. And also the way they did that was like, they got, I mean, the story goes that, who knows, it's a story, but I like it. Uh, that Miles Davis, and this is just before he like become Miles Davis. You still had to kind of like be in the yeah. know to know who Miles Davis was. And he was in Paris in the late 50s. And Louis Mal loved jazz and he knew who he was. And he was like, ooh, I want this guy to do my soundtrack for this new film I'm doing, which was, you know, Elevator. And then like he went to like, I think he sent his assistant to the club and he wasn't there. And the club was like, oh, he's, he's off. He's just like off to the airport, like just now, you just missed him. So the assistant, I think with Louis Mal, like, runs or you know runs over to the airport like gets drives over there and like catches him like at the airport 
and he's and he's like please like mr davis like you need to do my soundtrack you need to do my film please you have to stay like and please 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 and he's <laughs> like uh well he's like show it to me and then we'll decide and he like convinced him and he he like drove him over and he screened it for him and he's like okay we'll uh we'll do it in like two days or something and so he like got his band together and like they just set up the film and like davis davis had some little like ideas like from the screening he would go like oh maybe this kind of thing here and maybe but that was it it was just like maybe this maybe that who the fuck knows and then they just played the film in the studio for like a day or two and he and his band just improvised to the movie so like most of that soundtrack is just him going like yeah we'll do this and they just kind of screwed around and came out with this amazing uh, soundtrack. So we tried to do the same, basically. So I was excited that we got to, like, we got them in the studio. We played, the, you know, the movie for them. We talked about ideas beforehand. And then they just kind of, like, improvised to the movements of the film and the tempo that they were seeing. And I think it was one or two days. It was great. It was so much fun. So, yeah, I, I, music is a big part of my films. And I wish I had, you know, all the money in the world to be able to to be able to you know license <laughs> any track i want um and and for lies and cheats the movie we just did that was also a, a jazz soundtrack that we we did basically and that was a big shout to like birdman where we had the whole thing yeah. is a, a drum a jazz drum soundtrack so we got like one jazz yeah. drummer and we just got in the studio for a day and coming up with some ideas and then Every so often, you know, intermittently, you get these like spurts of music, and the whole film is just scored scored through this amazing jazz drummer. Save for, save for the beginning and the end, uh, it's all it's all that. Yeah, um, I well, a few months ago I watched a documentary Miles Davis called The Birth of the Call, and I could really like tell the influence of having to nowhere, um, especially the soundtrack. Like I was listening to it on YouTube uh, earlier today, and it's great. Yeah, it's amazing. It's uh, it's great. I mean, all of his stuff is great. I love the early stuff. Yeah, Birth of the Cool and So What and uh, and uh, Elevate to the Gallows. But I have to see that. I don't yeah. think I've seen that doc yet. To check it out. Um, I believe it's on BBC iPlayer, so it, it's quite. Easy to it check came out like a few years ago, right? Like a year or two. Twenty. Yeah, yeah. I think it won the Grammy Award. Yeah, I remember. Like thinking. Um, it's it came great. out, but like I couldn't find it at the time, and I forgot about it. I might watch that tonight. Yeah, it's it's, it's great. Yeah. So, um, is is there a specific um, director, writer, one of each, maybe that um that has influenced the way you write and the way the way you shoot your films? I don't, films I don't even know. I love. I mean, I love so many people. I feel like it go. It's different from project to project because I get so involved in like homaging something or going back to a time period so it's like for me it's like when I'm I'm again because I don't make usually modern movies usually um, or if I do like with Liars I was thinking about a whole bunch of movies in the 60s for instance so like I love I mean I love Billy Wilder and I love his writing and I mean, I love Wes Anderson. I love Noah Baumbach. And uh, I mean, I love Scorsese. I don't think I write like Scorsese, but I, I love him. Um, and visually, he does amazing things. So, yeah, I think I pretty much like will 
just research the hell out of a time period that I just happened to be really interested in and watch a bunch of those films for like that genre, that style. And that's just how I, I work. Like I will kind of just, my initial reaction is like, I want to copy this. Like that's, that's yeah. where it all comes from. It's like, I want to do a movie <clears throat> like this. And because it's 2020 and I'm trying to make a movie that feels and looks like a movie from 1969 or 1955 or you know whatever they they i know that they're going to come out different and i know they're going to come out because like nobody is doing that like most people are not doing shot for shot ideas of like they would do it like this in these films they would do it like this in these films so i just love getting that and then of course over that time and working with you know whatever who all the people you're working with and all the ideas that are kind of strewn through your brain it becomes different and it you you couldn't possibly think like it needs to be exactly like these movies because it never would be and i know that so that's why like that's my starting point and then i go through some so like for a stranger i was like consuming all these hitchcock movies and uh, like brief encounter and all these movies from the, of the 40s and stuff and the 30s and like that kind of went through my brain and became waiting for a stranger and that kind of went through and became my version of a French and Wave film. And Liars and Cheats is like my version of like a, a, a Billy Wilder, a Neil Simon. Uh, it's all these like 60s comedies to like with like Marilyn Monroe in them and like those kind of movies and The Odd Couple. That was like my version of those comedies coming through. And uh, so it's like next, next one will be another version of a bunch of directors and films that I love and try and recreate that. And I try and recreate that in the writing too. I try and kind of like read, I, like I read a bunch of Neil Simon plays while I was writing Liars, trying to get the, the syntax of like how his characters speak and they overlap each other and they have this very New York way about them. And then, yeah, French New Wave, I was like, there's almost no talking in Avenue to Nowhere because for me it was all about like the looks and the expressions and the, the you know, the sparse cinematography and a few very dramatic French, you know, lines you know, here and there. So I like try to be a chameleon. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh yeah. <laughs> um, we'll, we'll, we'll start, um, like finish off with a few, I have a few questions about uh, like your process. So you said that you like watch a bunch of directors, you get like, it, I guess you get an idea. What is your process from like the idea to then first starting to write the screenplay? You get characters first. I will usually concept. get the atmosphere first. What excites me about a new project is just like what it will feel like, what it will look like, what it will sound like, what music will be in it, what shots might appear, you know, here and there. So like a world excites me. So, you know, French New Wave is like, wow, the world of like black and white Paris at night. That's a world I want to I want to film. Uh, and you know, free fall, uh, the, which is the the space uh, film about Joe Kinder jumping from hundred thousand feet. That's like, wow! Like nineteen fifties test pilots in the desert, like you know, lo-fi space equipment. Like yeah, and the music and all the rockabilly and all the Elvis and like yes, I'm into that world, you know. So. That's where it starts for me. It's like I, I get an idea, 
then I kind of gobble up all the research I can, like any books on the time or on the exact subject I'm writing about, I'll gobble up, I'll start listening a little like more so to like those songs while I'm kind of writing ideas down. And definitely when I'm writing the script, I'll listen to all the period uh, music as I'm writing. And then, yeah, and then characters usually usually come later. Usually it's just like, I love this world. Who lives in this world? Oh, this person might, this person might. And then you sometimes like the story kind of comes later too, but it's just like, you just write, I just tend to write like through like, yeah, I just, this is just coming out on the page. I don't know why. I just love this feeling. And then you kind of read it back after a few days and you're like, okay, like, oh, this is what I want to do with it. And then that changes too, you know? But um, yeah, I, I love, so I love the, the feeling and I love the visual. I love what's going to look like and feel like. So, so um, si- since you've become a filmmaker and since you started um, writing scripts and, you know, starting to develop your own movies, um, how 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 would you say you've mo- how how would you say you've matured since the uh, beginning oh, yeah. of your career as a filmmaker? Uh, have I? I don't know. <laughs> it's been. It's just I, <laughs> when I think about that, I think about <laughs> just that I've learned a lot of things like behind the scenes, and I've you know the realities of being a filmmaker and the realities of, of trying to get out there and get your films out there. I think it's. The, like and I've learned a hell of a lot like over the process like there's so many things I, I wish well I, you know I will do um, but things like the process of like at first it was plan as much as you can because you know you only have this much time with people and you only have this much money which is true but as I keep making things and as I keep you know reading things and seeing things and interviews and I really just want to be able to like make stuff up on set not like out of the blue but just like have the ability to really get everyone together and rehearse on set and think about where the camera goes and where the blocking should be like on set and and just have the time to be able to not pre-plan everything to a fault because i think it's fun but i you know it it lacks it can lack that spontaneity whereas like I'm still very happy with all the films I've done and lots of filmmakers have made films that way and they're great. But just personally, I have the the need and the want to go further into just like, let's just get on set and, you know, everyone creates it together at that moment because I think that's a really good attitude for it. And um, like I do improv off when I'm not doing filmmaking, I'm in an improv duo called Avocado and so improv is a very part of my life and like there's nothing much like being like on stage and when you think of something and your partner says something and the audience you know hears something and everyone's experiencing it at the exact same time it's so much more validating to have that whole room be with you at the same time having the same idea you know rather than you walking onto a set and saying okay guys like this is how we planned it. Um, she'll come here. She'll come out of there. He'll come out of there. Cameron will be here, which has been like how I started my filmmaking career. And now I really am going more towards like, hey, so this is the dialogue. Maybe, you know, maybe it changes. Uh, run it. 
and let's see where you end up. And then from that, let's see where the camera ends up and where we all want to shoot it. And then, okay, and then we'll take a break and you light it and we'll come back. And like, that would be really where I'd like, where I'm, where I'm going and where I really want to go on the next picture. Um, yeah, that's, that would definitely be the, the dream. Um, sure, finished final question. Um, what advice would you give to a film student coming just who's just finished university or college? Um, would it be stri- go straight into that feature film or develop like a few short films first? What well, I would say then? to pretty much myself coming out of college is make the feature, make the feature, make the feature, make the feature, make the yeah. feature any way you can. Because it's daunting, you know, from a thousand points of view, right? Like it's long, it takes planning, it takes money, it takes people, it takes time. But I did the shorts route, my friends did the shorts route, you know, we all pretty much did the same thing. No, no one who I went to film school with came out and, and made that feature. But I had people tell me to do that and I didn't listen to them. <laughs> And look, it's all fine and there's no real, you know, big regrets or anything and life <laughs> is what it is. And you learn so much, you know, like doing shorts and all this. But the, the fastest way to get your career started and to get out there in the world and to have like validity and a reputation where people will start thinking about you and maybe give you that script and maybe, you know, have that meeting that said, well, we're thinking about you for this is a feature. And, and, and I've, you know, I, I've known people who have worked on or who have made like first features that even in the back of their heads, they're like, I know it's not that good. We rushed it. We got it out there. We just, but now, but then, you know, you talk to them a year later and they're making a second feature because it's all about having it out there in the world. You know, like it doesn't have to be a, the masterpiece of your career. That's the, you know, you asked me that earlier question. I'd say that's probably actually they all tie together in this, which is that I've learned, you know, you can't, you, you don't always have to be sitting there holding out for like your masterpiece of an idea. And, you know, you've got this script and this is this amazing script, but it's going to cost millions of dollars. And you kind of hold out for that or you really want to try and make that first. But, you know, just make the script that you can make that you obviously you should like it, but it, you don't have to love it and you don't have to hold out. You don't have to say this isn't perfect. And I'm not, you know, I'm not doing my Spielberg, you know, I'm not doing my mean streets and I'm not doing, you know, cause there's so much you can hold up to and go like, but these guys, their first films were amazing. But for the most part, people don't make their masterpieces right away. And if you do fantastic, you know, but just do what you can make an hour yeah. and 20 minute feature any way you can. And you will be part of the club of movie makers with features. You know what I mean? Even shorts that win awards, there's no, I mean, you, you want there to be, but unfortunately, like even if your short wins, wins really big somewhere, it's still not like you won this award all of a sudden you're making a feature or all of a sudden you've got this giant agent or something like that. You know, like it doesn't, it doesn't work like that. I've seen, I've seen it happen. I've seen that it's not that. So you're, you're better off making like the best feature you can make at that time than making like the best short that you could ever make. 
because the the odds are like it just doesn't yeah. it just doesn't translate for a lot of people in this business as like oh they made a great short but you know whatever a feature is a whole different ball game so get out there make a feature yeah. so any way you can set it in one location you know like like set it outside for all I care you know spend like literally no money on it but just have something out yeah. there and you'll find yourself uh, in a really good place at least right after school way more than doing like four shorts yeah that's fine I'm, re- I'm really I'm really sorry but um, I'm going to be a pain here I do have one more question um, maybe it's something you've uh, thought about um, maybe you haven't quite um, thought about it yet but um, where, where do you see yourself in um, 10 years I mean, time in, in terms of time, the, uh, you know, the film industry making you know my fourth film or something like that you know that I just want to be working I just want to be able to make the movies I want to make um, really I'll be lucky if that's the case you know what I mean like I just want to be making movies that I care about. Um, I don't need to be in like the, the big system. I don't need to be making a movie that costs 50 million or a hundred million or whatever. Like I would much, I'm much happier just saying here, you know what, if I can be making movies that cost like a million or 2 million or 5 million or something like that, like smaller movies, but I have more control and I'm able to like work with the people I want to work with. And I'm a working, you know, director who can get stuff made. That that would be like my dream, you know. Like I don't, I'm I'm not sitting here going like my dream is like living in Beverly Hills, you know, and making the next, you know, Star Wars or whatever. And like I, I'm I'm, <laughs> I'm not that I'm not that old, but I'm you know I'm not that young. Where I've been in this business for a while and trying to do stuff, and that's kind of where I at. Where where you're like I just want to be working and not losing money on films and uh, liking what I do, you know, that's, that's all it comes down to. Hmm. That's great. Um, I mean, thank you for coming on. It's been great. You're welcome guys. Thank, thanks for having me. And, yeah. Uh, thank you so much. Out. It's been a, it's been a real pleasure. Um, yeah. So we'll, we'll keep an eye yeah, on like, no live Um, I mean, it'd be great if we can get you on again in the future, um, maybe, and um, talk a little more. Um, but lies and cheats. Yeah, September, October, out around start rolling October. And, uh, and in the That's meanwhile, uh, the, the last thing I created, which was during lockdown, which like you guys said, you created this podcast during lockdown. Um, me and, me and my, my comedy partner for Avocado, we started recording basically like improv we started recording it just in the studios and stuff and in, a, in yeah. uh, at our homes. And so we created this comedy album and that's basically how we've been like able to get our creativity out. And it just came out uh, last week or something. It's like everywhere, Spotify, whatever it's called the avocado tapes. And it's like an hour comedy album with like different sketches, like really, you know, like two minutes here, five minutes here and it's all improvised. And that's, that's like been my biggest creative output, you know, for, for the quarantine. So, that's definitely something fun to kind of put on in the background. That's great, man. Um, some My great pleasure, advice. Guys. Uh, thank you. That's great. All right, um, cool. We'll speak yeah, thank you.
Yeah, thank you. Uh, thank you.